0: ho 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 merry christmas it's beginning to look a lot like christmas everywhere you go silent night ho come on you know the song holy night outstanding beautiful beautiful now now why am i saying this well today's message is the Christmas story. So the title of this message is Christmas in February. Now, I have to start off uh, just by saying that we we started last week in the book of Matthew. And um, we went through the genealogy, looked through the genealogy of Christ, and we took a look at how Jesus was rightly entitled to be king, not only through the bloodline of of Joseph, but also dually through that of Mary. And we looked at Abidah, who had only no other part in the Bible other than just to be in that bloodline, to go ahead and be part of that very special birth of our Lord and Savior. We examined the the virgin birth and how man would attempt to remove the miracle of immaculate conception, and yet at the same time deify Mary, saying that all of her children were without her having known her husband, Joseph. Uh, There's two house cleaning items that I would like to take care of. First off, I wrongly said in both services, my notes are off, and I said that Rahab married Boaz. No, that was Ruth that married Boaz, and uh, Rahab married Solomon, okay? Secondly, I had this whole introduction to Matthew, and when I printed out my notes, I don't know where it went. (laughs) So, you're going to get a little bit of that today. Uh, So today, we're going to start off with that introduction to Matthew. Uh, We're going to look at the great and the terrible things surrounding the birth of Jesus. And we're going to delve into and celebrate Christmas in February. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord... I love the fact that we can go ahead and in your word, we can learn so much about you. I love the fact that we can go ahead and we can see that so many things are not coincidence, but instead part of your perfect plan. God, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for bringing your only son, your only begotten son into this world. And Lord, our opportunity just to learn all of those great and terrible things Lord, about him. So, Lord, I pray that you would prepare hearts and minds. As always, I ask, if it is not of me or not of you, that it would truly fall on deaf ears. And if it is, etch it upon our hearts. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And it is in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 So, in the book of Matthew, um, it shows the succession of the throne, which is often... Conflict and uncertainty. David's son Absalom tried to usurp the throne. And we read about that in 2 Samuel 5.18. Saul's continuous pursuit of David. Uh, Solomon, his choice of a successor, lost more than half of the kingdom to a traitor. And we read that in 1 Kings 12.20. Manaheim assassinated his predecessor in Israel. And we read that in 2 Kings 15.4. Royalty is a dangerous business. And it's no less true when we're dealing with the king of kings. It is a game of high stakes succession. And that it definitely was. Now, a man who's going to claim to be Israel's Messiah. Of course, everybody in Israel is going to sit up and take notice. He must be able to prove his credentials. The book of Matthew presents exactly that. Jesus' credentials. It presents Jesus as the king of kings and not a king, but excuse me, and a king of a totally different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. You know, this next question is kind of like who's buried in Grant's tomb? Who wrote the book of Matthew? You know, As we look at the author, the gospel does not list Matthew's name, nor as Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he goes ahead and he says, calls himself the preacher, but it does contain clues that we can take away as surety that Matthew is its author. The author knew the geography of Palestine well. He was familiar with Jewish history, customs, ideas, and classes of people. He was well acquainted with the Old Testament, And terminology of the book suggests that the author was a Palestinian Jew. Other details specifically point uh, specifically to other details point specifically to Jesus's disciple, Matthew, as the writer of the gospel. As a tax collector, Matthew would have been literate and very familiar with keeping records of monies. Appropriately, this gospel contains more references to money than all the others combined, Furthermore, Matthew's hometown was Capernaum, Capernaum, a village that is in Palestine that, when mentioned, he gives special attention to and the description and details that are attached to it. Now, when was the book of Matthew written? Matthew wrote the gospel just before, or excuse me, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He describes Jerusalem as the holy city as though it was still standing and speaks of the customs of the Jews as continuing until this day. Also, Jesus' prophetic um, uh, prophecy in 24.2 of Jerusalem's destruction includes no indication that it had already occurred. In light of all of this, it's reasonable then to conclude that the book of Matthew was written somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. Now, what was the purpose of the book of Matthew? Well, Matthew's gospel serves many purposes um, beyond just presenting a mere biography of Jesus. One of its purposes is to prove to the Jewish readers that Jesus is their Messiah and promised king. You know, back in the 1920s, there was a rabbi. Um, He was the rabbi of rabbis. He would go ahead and teach scripture to the other teachers. Um, In the martial arts, we call that shihan or the teacher of teachers. Now, one of the things that he did was one day in class, he noticed, he looked down at a student, and the student had the New Testament. He became extremely angry, and he picked it up, and he threw it across the room. As time went on, and World War II came into being, there was the persecution of the Jews. And he was praying, God, why? Why were your people, and yet you still Go ahead and allow us to be persecuted like this. And he was cleaning up his classroom. And there where he had thrown the New Testament, he found it. He opened it up and he read the book of Matthew. And he gave his life to Jesus. Ultimately, he came over into this country where he established a ministry, reaching out to those Jews, trying to, promote the same conversion that had happened to him and it was a beautiful thing now there are also other reasons for the book number 1 the genealogy of the chapter of chapter 1 points to Christ as the one who inherited God's promises through David jesus also uses the familiar Masonic psalms in matthew 22 41 through 44 and this would have clearly implied to any Jew that he was their heir to the throne of David. Even though many Jews were blind to Jesus' identity, Gentiles, such as the wise men, identified him as Israel's promised king, even when he was just a baby and a small child. Finally, the charge that hung over Jesus' head on the cross clearly highlights his royalty. This is Jesus, king of the Jews we read that in Matthew 27, 37. Some of the other purposes in the book um, is to outline the characteristics of the kingdom of God, both for Israel and the church. Now, it's interesting because Matthew is the only gospel um, where the writer speaks directly of the church. And we can find that in chapter 16, verse 18 and Chapters 18, verse 17, he points to the Gentile composition of the church, so no longer being excluded from the kingdom, but instead now grafted into God's family, shown with the wise men in chapter 2, as we're going to see a little bit later, by the centurion in chapter 8, and the Canaanite woman in chapter 15. Jesus' teachings pointed out the blessings of the kingdom being extended to the Gentiles. The final purpose of Matthew was to instruct the church. Matthew does not emphasize the narrative of Jesus' life like Mark does in his gospel. Instead, he uses the narrative elements in the gospel as a setting for Jesus' sermons. Shall we open up our Bibles and go ahead to the second chapter in Matthew as we follow along with our narrator?
1: Matthew 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, Till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, And fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which were spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, Lamentation, and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, And would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, An angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream. He turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene.
0: So we start off in book in the uh, first verse one. <laughs> it took forever to get out. I'm sorry, folks. was the king reigning in Judea. He reigned from about 37 B.C. until about 4 A.D. Now, there were many Herods, but this was Herodias, or Herod the Great. Why was he called great? Well, Herod was great indeed. In some ways, as a ruler, as a builder, as an administrator. In other ways, great in politics and in cruelty. He was wealthy, politically gifted, Insensely loyal an excellent administrator and clever enough to remain in the good graces of the successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superb and his building projects included the second temple or what was known as Herod's temple, which begun at about 20 BC was admired even by his foes, but he loved power, inflicted incredibly heavy taxes upon the people. And resented the fact that many Jews considered him a usurper or one who takes power illegally or by force. In his last year's suffering and illness that compounded, he had suffering and illness that compounded his paranoia. He turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy, killed close associates, even his own wife and sons. Augustus, the Roman emperor, once said that it was safer to be Herod's pig, than to be one of his sons. So if Herod heard these things and was troubled, you better beware. Verse four. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, by you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, this prophecy here, we get this from Micah 5:2, and the minor prophet went ahead and predicted Jesus' birth in Bethlehem 400 years earlier. Remember last week when I talked about the whole weatherman thing? right? I shared with my men's group one time that this was one of those epiphany moments for me when I went ahead and looked and saw that here it was with much clarity. If God's word through the prophet Micah can be used and come true 400 years later, then you know what? God, you're real. God, you're omnipotent, all-powerful, and I will trust you and your word. Amen? Yes. Now, what's so special about Bethlehem? What does Bethlehem even mean? Well, it means house of bread. So, I think it totally appropriate for the bread of life to be born there. Remember, take this bread and eat of it. For this is my body, which has been broken for you. And also, don't you find it interesting that here it is, Wise men came from the east, traveled hundreds of miles, but yet the scribes and the Pharisees who knew these words, that knew the prophets, knew what was coming, wouldn't even go five miles in order to check it out. Religion can blind us, folks. That's why it's so important to have a relationship so that you don't miss that meeting with Jesus. Now, if you still want to go ahead and see the baby Jesus, you don't have to travel to Bethlehem. All you have to do is go down about three blocks, make a right on ocean view. My Christmas lights are still up, the manger scene. uh, Everything is in my front yard. But I promise I'm taking care of that today, okay? So last chance. (laughs) Now, Bethlehem was about five miles outside of Jerusalem. It was David the shepherd who slayed Goliath, who became king, and it was through his bloodline that Christ was born. When we read the Christmas story in Luke, we also see angels that appear to the shepherds and that famous manger scene with all of them surrounding the baby Jesus. Okay, Adam, so why were there so many shepherds in Bethlehem? Ah, because they tended the sheep that were used for the temple sacrifices. So again, I think it totally appropriate that the Lamb of God was born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and was surrounded by shepherds. Now, if you were to go to Bethlehem today, you wouldn't be overly wowed. It's not like Vegas with all its lights or New York City with all of its skyscrapers. No, there's nothing fancy about it at all. To most tourists, Bethlehem is a major disappointment because when they get there, they expect to see something special. But when they get there, all they see is a typical Middle Eastern city. Let's take a look at the Church of the Nativity. You see, people are expecting to see something awesome. But when they walk in, they see this church that itself is divided into three sections. The Catholic, Eastern, and Russian Orthodox. Uh, Because these three groups have been fighting for centuries and fighting who would control the site. As you enter into this little side door of the church, you travel down a hallway, and there from the ceiling, you see all these objects that are hanging, these ornaments. And they look kind of like Christmas tree ornaments in a garage sale. <laughs> With the church fighting, the dusty relics hanging, no wonder Bethlehem appears it would be so disappointing. And you know, once again, it's man's attempt. And when you think about it, I mean, it's, it's some pretty beautiful marble. Those are some very ornate little ornaments that they have hung there and everything. But when we think about God, how awesome he is, the fact that He created the universe doesn't really pale. I mean, when you place that right up against the event of what happened, yeah. But you know what? As I thought about this some more, it's perfect. Why do I say it's perfect? Because when Jesus was born, he was probably born in a cave, okay? The stable that was held there. It wasn't a picturesque setting that we often have in our minds or like the first slide that we opened up with, with all the wise men around. But instead, it was no doubt dirty. There was no doubt cow pies on the ground with flies bussing all around it. It had to be so because Jesus came into a real world as a real man to real people. Bethlehem mirrors that reality today. An insignificant little city, yet one of the best known places in the world for only one reason. Jesus was there. Verse 7 then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent, to them, uh, sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. <laughs> you can almost see Herod saying, okay, you wise guys, go find out where he is. And then I'm gonna worship him also. Wink, wink to the servants. <laughs> right? I mean, that was it. Do you see Herod's sincerity at all in the statement? No, not at all. He was determined to exalt his position, to establish his own authority, and to eliminate that babe of Bethlehem. Verse nine, when they heard the king had departed, Uh, When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over them where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, now let's take a look at this. As we look at this scene, it's fictitious, isn't it? The wise men weren't really there with all the shepherds, everybody there in the manger and everything along those lines. No, nope, it was probably a lot more like this. Just the shepherds, nothing fancy, in a cave. You see, as we kind of read in it, right? A little bit later. First off, it says that Jesus was a young child. So he's not a baby anymore. Those two words cannot be interchanged. Secondly, um, as it is, it says that they came into the house. You know what? Everybody was done with the census, okay? Okay, we've been counted. Cool. You think they're hanging around anymore? Do you think Mary and Joseph want to hang out with all the cow pies anymore? No, they were done, okay? There we go. Motel 6 finally has vacancy. Let's go, okay? And they moved into that house. So it was years later. So I proposed that the scene was probably a lot more like this. The young child with the wise men. Now... when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, it's funny. Um, We just recently celebrated the um, Christmas holidays. And as such, I asked Connie, my youngest daughter, five years old, I said, what did you learn in, in Sunday school today? And she goes, oh, well, we learned about the wise men. I said, oh, really? And the gifts that they brought. And I said, well, what were those gifts? And she said, Frankenstein's golden myrrh. (laughs) God bless our child care. God bless them. And the incredible work that they have to do with my child. Now, they went ahead and they presented gifts. Gifts of gold. Now, why did they give Jesus gold? Well, I say that it was for two reasons. First of all, because gold for a king, the king of kings who would go ahead and rule us one day. Also, they gave frankincense. Now, frankincense, I used to love this in the Catholic church. Because they would mix frankincense and charcoal, and they'd put it into a censer. And then here it is, they'd, the priest would walk up and down the aisle, and the smoke would go over you, and there was this wonderful smell that filled the room. But you know, it wasn't something that was invented by the Catholic priests. It was something that actually, if we look all throughout the Old Testament, we see time and time again, when there were those burnt offerings, that the priests also offered incense. Incense of frankincense. And in Exodus 30, 34, God said to Moses, take fragrances such as balsam, onyx gallium, and pure frankincense, all of the same weight, as well as other specific, specified fragrances. You see, there was actually 11 herbs and spices. No, not the same ones that Kentucky Fried Chicken uses, okay? But they were, there were some of them that were known And the other ones, only the priest knew. And it was something that was passed down orally from priest to priest, from generation to generation. And only those knew. But now you might ask, why? Why would they go ahead and burn these incense? Well, you know, one of the things was the representation of the smoke rising up is to represent our prayers as they go up to our Lord. And that's why we burn incense. Myrrh was also a spice that was used in burials, and as we combine all three of those, we see that it was a threefold office of Jesus, the Messiah, and the wise men understood it. Gold for a mighty king, frankincense for a ministering priest, and myrrh for a martyred prophet, for they knew he was going to die. that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, at first when I read this, I thought to myself, you know, Egypt, why would you want to go ahead and take Jesus to Egypt? You know, I mean, Egypt often represents sin in Scripture. So we're going to go ahead and take this infant, this beautiful brand-new baby, he that was without sin, into Egypt. And I thought, why would we want to go and do something like that? And yet at the same time, all of a sudden, God was just changing my heart, and there was this 180 that was done. And in that, I realized, no, what a perfect place to take Jesus, to take the Lamb of God, the bread of life. Jesus journeyed into into Egypt that he might free us from Egypt. He might free us, from our sin. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he set forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all in all districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentations, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, folks, this is where it gets a little bit dark. You see, Herod showed his great cruelty as he put to death all of those two years old and younger. Swords flashed, mothers screamed. Blood flowed in the streets. And now we see the other side of the Christmas story. Think on that for a moment. As a military soldier and a soldier of the law, I have seen the horrors of what man can do to another human being. And when somebody who has lived a long life, at least there's a kind of peace knowing that, hey, They've had their chance here. They had their time here. But when it's a child, they look to us for protection. They look to us for provision. And when somebody, because of their cruelty, or just their flippant um, disregard, injures or kills one of these little ones, yeah, I've got a problem with that. I was working one night when I got the call of a head-on collision. It was over off of the 138 west of the 15. And witnesses had put the other vehicle at high speeds, crossing over the double yellow lines, and passing people. Well, traveling westbound was a vehicle with a mother, her sister, a five-year-old behind the sister, and a two-year-old. The head-on collision went ahead and the impact itself was just horrific pieces of metal and and debris were strewn all over the place and the vehicle was a lifted four by four so it didn't just impact but it continued to ride over and from the impact the mother was beheaded the two children in the back even though they were in car seats were not buckled in the five-year-old again from the impact was raised up and from his ears up was gone The two-year-old was ejected from the vehicle and was out off on the side. Because of our shortage, there was only two of us that handled that collision that night. Two of us out there to take care of this scene. My buddy who was out there with me shared with me just years ago that he had nightmares that continue to this day. I've seen a lot of horrific events in my life, but that was definitely one of those that will be with me till eternity. Now that was two children. Herod went ahead and killed all those children. Take that and multiply it by 10. Take that and multiply it by possibly 100 that's what we were dealing with that's what it was the other side of the christmas story matthew 10:34 he reminds us do not think that i came to bring peace on earth i did not come to bring peace but a sword you see god placed Children in our lives, to provide for them, to care for them. And I have to honor, I have to be honest with you. I want to take the law into my own hands when I deal with this. But revenge is God's and God's alone. Amen? Amen. Verse 17 Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. Jeremiah saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations, weeping, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, when I first read this, I thought, Ramah, is that another name for Bethlehem? No. As we go ahead and we look at the map, we can see that Ramah is about 11 miles just north of, of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is down below it. So then I started thinking to myself, okay, so could I have finally found the mistake in God's word, in his inerrant word? Is this what you're showing me, God? No. You see, this prophecy is actually twofold. First in Jeremiah, when the Jewish people were taken into captivity, Rachel wept, refusing to be comforted. This was on the road to Bethlehem and Rachel's tomb faces towards and is near Bethlehem. Rachel once again is pictured as mourning for the violent loss of her sons. And Matthew uses this as a representation of the great loss and the slayings by Herod. In verse 19, now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying arise take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead then he arose and took the young child and his mother and they came into the land of Israel verse 22 but when he heard that Archelaus Herod's son was reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there and being warned by God in a dream dream. He turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. First, We see here again and again and again the angel of the Lord coming to Joseph in a dream. I wish I could start a sleep ministry. Don't you guys? I get about four or five hours every night. (laughs) That'd be wonderful. Hey, I had a dream. Okay. Um, But where is it that they make this big move to? They're coming out of Egypt. Wait for it. Nazareth. Nazareth. Woohoo! Yes, yes, that's where I want to be. I want to go to Nazareth. Really? Nazareth. Well, you know, we could almost nowadays substitute the town of Muskoy for Nazareth. Okay? (laughs) Nazareth was not the most picturesque spot. In fact, Nazareth—the word literally means bean town or sprout town. Or if we were to put it into our own linguistics, it would be called. (laughs) Town. <laughs> that is why when Nathaniel, uh, upon hearing that m- the Messiah is from Nazareth says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It is possible. Is, is it possible that the Messiah would actually come from a place like this? And in Isaiah, he writes that the Messiah would come forth as a rod of the stem of Jesse. We read that in Isaiah 11, 1. In other words, the Messiah would come out as a sprout out of the stem of Jesse or from Sprout Town. Wherever it is that you're living, wherever you are from, remember that Jesus can relate to your situation. He chose to be a Nazarene, to be from Sprout Town, to be one of us. I'd like to finish up by reading a story, and it's a story called The Forty Brave Soldiers for Christ. The Forty Brave Soldiers of Christ. In the first century, when Hadrian was enter, or emperor of Rome, he waged war against the Christians in the empire. A group of 40 believers were gathered together to worship in northern Italy. Soldiers surrounded them and said, Upon order of the emperor, your worship of this so-called king, the king of the Jews, must cease immediately or you will be executed. And they responded, Do what you will, even if it costs our lives. So the Roman soldiers took them up into the mountainous region. It was wintertime in a small lake, in a small lake area, which was completely frozen over. The captain of the guard said, Here is one more opportunity for you to deny Jesus Christ, or we will strip you, place you on the lake all night until your bodies freeze. It is better to freeze one night than to burn in hell for eternity, answered the brave believers. So the 40 believers took off their clothes, sat naked on the ice. With their teeth chattering and their knees knocking, they sang 40 brave soldiers for Christ. As the Romans looked on and mocked them, come and be warmed by the fire and be saved, they would call out. But the believers would not budge. After about an hour or so, one Christian stood up, unable to endure the pain any longer. He ran towards the soldiers saying, I deny Jesus Christ. And he was welcomed to be warmed by the fire. He couldn't pay the price, and he turned his back on Jesus the Christ. What about us? What would happen if suddenly we were absolutely forbidden to name the name of Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to suffer? be tortured, to die. Let's come back to those 40 believers in that northern lake in Italy. After one of their brothers had left and turned away, they still sang, only they changed their song to 39 brave soldiers for Christ. One of the Roman soldiers observing the scene was so moved that he ripped off his clothes and he ran upon the lake and said, no, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. 40 brave soldiers for Christ. Matthew 10, 39 says, He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. If you live for your flesh, for your friends, even for your family, you're going to lose everything. But if you give up your life and say, Lord, I'm willing to follow you. I'm dying to self. Let the sword strike where it will. You will find life. And that is the irony of Christianity. The more you die, the more you live. Follow the babe of Bethlehem. Yes, there will be weeping. Yes, there will be sorrow. That's what Jeremiah 31, 15 prophesied. But don't forget, that. good things are coming. You who have paid the price and taken up the cross, refrain from weeping. There can be hurts and sorrows, but the blessings you have presently pale to those that lie ahead and they're oh so much greater oh so much greater if you're here today and you haven't asked Jesus into your heart accept him today he's been waiting over 2,000 years for you don't make him wait one more day let's pray dear Lord You are so amazing. Amazing that you would send your only begotten son down to earth. Lord, give him a ministry lasting only three years that he would die for my sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, one of the most important decisions that we can ever make in our lives is that of asking you into our hearts so God I pray I pray today right here right now that if there is somebody here in this sanctuary that does not know you that has not called on your name that they would do so now if that's you if you feel that tugging on your heart then I pray that you would just open up your eyes and look at me right now Look to me. God bless you. Accept him today. For he wants to be with you. And Lord, we ask forgiveness of our sins. For they are many. And we cannot pay the price. But Lord, you have already gone to the cross and done so. So Lord, I thank you. We love you. And it is in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Would you all please stand? as we worship him one more time.